Well, I told you last Sunday that we would be in Haggai for a few weeks. Who wants to find Haggai? So let's, let's open our Bibles. Old Testament ends with Malachi, and then there's Zechariah before that, and then there's Haggai before that. So it's the third to last book of your Old Testament. Once you have found Haggai chapter 1, I want you to hold your spot there with your finger. We'll be right back to that text in a moment. And I want you to turn back to Ezra, where we've been, to Ezra chapter 4. So we're going to start in Ezra 4, and then we'll jump to Haggai chapter 1 in a moment. Again, Haggai chapter 1, hold your spot there. And then we are going to begin in Ezra chapter 4 now. So again, because we are in a more remote part of the Bible, I, I think that there's a need just to remind everyone where we are at the beginning of these sermons. So Israel had been exiled to Babylon for 70 years for sin and idolatry, and God has brought a remnant back of about 50,000 people. They began by rebuilding the altar, and then they started to rebuild the temple, but because of fear, not for really other reasons, because of fear, and we're going to see some of their, their personal reasons, for sinful reasons, they stopped building the temple, and this uh, time of ceasing to build the temple lasts for 16 years. So look with me here at Ezra 4. We're going to remind you from last week a few verses, starting in verses 4 and 5. Ezra 4, verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that verse 6 begins a long parenthesis. Do you remember this? And from verse 6 all the way to the end of verse 23, there's a large parenthesis where, remember, Ezra, the author, jumps forward about 100 years in history and talks about another situation and then at the end of the chapter, he comes back to where he started. You guys remember that from last week? Okay, <laughs> I hope so. So we're going to jump ahead. So remember, this is the second year. We're in the reign of Darius, and they're still not working on the temple. This is Ezra now 424. Then the work on the house of God, that's the temple, that is in Jerusalem, stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Just so you know, Darius started reigning in 522 B.C. This is the second year of his reign, so it's 520 B.C. That's the kind of math that I can do. Okay, right there. That's about the extent of the math I can do. So we're in 520 B.C., and look at the very next verse, Ezra 5, verse 1. So now we are in the second year of Darius, king of Persia. This is the year 520 B.C. It's one of those dates that we can just mark on a calendar to the very moment, and look at 5.1. What happens in the second year of Darius? Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now, I'm sure you've had this experience many times. You're reading maybe a news article online, and it's about whatever it may be about. It could be anything. And in the middle of the article, they mention some other issue, some other topic, and the, the, the words may be in blue or some other color, right? It's a hyperlink, and you put your mouse over it, and you, you're like, I don't really know much about this other issue. And you double-click on that phrase, and it takes you to 
another news article, right, that tells you in more detail what that one thing was about. If you, if you had that experience, right? So it's a hyperlink, right? So you're reading a long article about this, and then they mention another issue, and you click on it, and it sort of zooms in on another issue, and you get much more detail about that one little thing that was mentioned in the previous article. What, what, what we're doing is we're, we're seeing here the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah covered so briefly by Ezra. Ezra just says, in the second year of Darius, Haggai and Zechariah rose up and spoke God's word, and the people repented and started rebuilding. And that's great, but we have this incredible ability because of how the Bible interconnects with itself to go to the little hyperlink. You see the word Haggai? You can double-click on Haggai, and it takes you to a whole other book of the Bible called Haggai that will expand in great detail on that moment. And you can click on Zechariah, and guess what? It takes you to the book of Zechariah, some of the last prophets of your Old Testament. So let's do that. Let's turn now to Haggai chapter 1. I, I, part of me just smiles that we're going to Haggai for the next few weeks, because if, if you're like me, this has not been probably a primary book of your Christian life, okay? I don't, I don't know where you're at. Maybe Haggai is your favorite book in the Bible. If it is, please come up and introduce yourself after the service. That would be fantastic. But this is not a book that tends to get a lot of airtime in Christian and evangelical circles, but it really is a tremendous two-chapter book. And I'll, I'll tell you, for me personally, and I hope this will be true for you, once you know the context of the book of Ezra, my Haggai makes a lot more sense. Well, once you understand the flow of what's going on in the first chapters of Ezra, Haggai finds its con contextual spot in the Bible storyline, and suddenly the words that before made little sense to many of us start making a whole lot more sense. So I hope uh, that you find this helpful, that they interconnect in this way. So let's look at Haggai 1, and before I read anything, let me just tell you that what Ezra calls Jeshua, Haggai calls Joshua. It's the word Yeshua for Jesus, right? Joshua, Jesus, Yeshua. And so it's translated in different ways. So yes, Jeshua is Joshua, in case that's confusing. All right, Haggai chapter 1, uh, verse 1. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Again, this is God's word. Haggai 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, 
on man and beast and on all their labors. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we spend a few weeks through this July in the book of Haggai, God, show us again that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. I pray that this remote prophet from the Old Testament would ring as relevant to us today that you would convict us of sin, that you would encourage us with the great glory of God that is clear in this text, that you would direct us towards you, God. God, we, we just talked about this in Sunday school. Our hearts are desperate. We, they are evil. We need you, God, to intervene in our heart, to turn the direction of our affections towards you, to help our hearts to cling to you, to get us to trust in you, hope in you, delight in you. God, we can't do these things apart from your help. So God, please illuminate your words so that we can understand it, apply it to our hearts so that we can live it, and God, change our hearts so that we are affected by the truths of what we read. We pray this for your glory and for your name. Amen. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to give you a three-part outline. doesn't go in precise order of the text, but I'll just give you these. For those who are interested in jotting these down, you don't have to. This is just for those who like to take notes. Uh, God's Word confronts sin. It's sort of the heading, God's Word confronts sin, and there's three points underneath that. So God's Word confronts sin. Point number one. And I'll explain these as we go. Number one, by comparing passions, verses 1 through 5. By comparing passions, verses 1 through 5. Number two, by showing sin's miserable results. By showing sin's miserable results. That's verse 6 and verses 9 to 11. By showing sin's miserable results. And number three, God's word confronts sin by by pointing to something better. By pointing to something better, that's verses 7 and 8. So let's begin. God's Word confronts sin, especially by comparing passions. Let's look again at these first verses. Let me reread verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now just stop here. Do you see this? This is the Sixth month and the first day of the month. Do you see that? So we're in the second year of King Darius. In, in modern language, I believe this is like August 28th, 520 BC. You can pinpoint it. So, so th- this, is, this is happening in, in August, and this is the first day of the sixth month. Everybody see that in verse 1? It's the first day of the sixth month. Now, I want you to look at the last verse of the chapter, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next Sunday. Verse 15. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Now, do you see we get bookends for the first chapter? It starts on the first day of the sixth month, and this chapter ends on the 24th day of the same month. That's pretty amazing because God's Word changes everything in 24 days. It's been 16 years of nothing, and God's Word comes down, And the prophet Haggai stands up with a fresh word straight from heaven, infallible, inerrant, God's very words coming out of the prophet, thus saith the Lord. And God speaks through Haggai. Haggai proclaims the message of God, and in 24 days, more gets done than happened in the last 16 years. There have been times in 
church history where revivals, true revivals, break out. You can think of the Great Awakening and other experiences like that. And there were stories told where one pastor speaks of having more people troubled about their soul and about their eternal well-being, struggling with their salvation. And one pastor said, I had more meetings with people seeking Christ and desperate to find Christ and seeking salvation. I had more desperate people come to me this week in one week, he said, than I have in all of my ministry up till now. And maybe you've been a part of moments in different places where you've seen an unusual outpouring of God's Spirit. What that looks like is not fanatical craziness, right? Sometimes we think if the Spirit comes down and people go crazy. No, we're not talking about that kind of stuff. We're talking about when the Spirit falls and God's Word is preached and God illuminates His Word, what happens? There is deep and profound conviction of sin. There's an overwhelming sense of the holiness and glory of God. There is a sense of the weight of eternal things. There is a sense of urgency concerning the salvation of those you know and love and your own eternal well-being. Those things begin to lay heavy on our minds. And what we can see is when God blows by the wind of His Spirit and unusual times of awakening and revival happen, more can occur in 24 days than can occur in 16 years. And this is one thing we should pray for. We should pray, not necessarily... Take, understand what I'm saying. We should pray with earnesty and passion that God move by His Spirit on us, on our city, on our country, on the world in ways that are profound, that are unexpected, in ways that we frankly couldn't believe unless God could do it Himself. Uh, asking Him to do things that seem impossible. That relative of yours who seems so hardened in sin, now older in life and just absolutely wants nothing to do with talking about Jesus. You do understand that God's Spirit is powerful enough to break through the most calloused heart. Even today, God can do by His Word the unthinkable, the unimaginable in a short period of time. And may that be true in our church, in our families, in our own hearts, that God would move by His Spirit and that in 24 days we would see things that haven't happened in years. So let's look at what's happening in this situation specifically. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways." We're commanded twice in this text to consider our ways, to think carefully. The old English word, the Puritan sort of King James word, which is a great word, walk circumspectly. To, to, to look with careful attentiveness to how we are thinking and how we're living. Hold, hold your spot here. Turn with me to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Ephesians 5, hold your spot in Haggai. And I've given this warning before. I'm going to give the warning again. There is such a thing as people who are prone to what has been called morbid introspection, which means they seem to only ever think about what's going on internally, and they get lost in despair of their own heart and sin, and they have a very hard time looking away from themselves to Jesus, to God's promises, to the gospel, and to God's grace. 
We don't want to be people who are always staring at ourselves, but at the same time, we don't want to forget to examine ourselves. We need to have a balance between both. Uh, And so here is a moment for self-examination. Consider your ways. And let's just read a few verses here. These will be familiar, I'm sure, to many of us. We'll we'll start in verse 6. We'll read the whole chapter if we wanted to, but let's start in Ephesians 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, these sins, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk. So here it is. Examine yourself. Look carefully then how you walk, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We see here the command to look carefully as to how we live, to consider our ways and to be wise. You can turn back to Haggai, but I want to talk about this just for a moment. It is very easy for us when we are not carefully considering our ways to get trapped in bad habits, in bad ways of thinking and acting. And when we do so, sin can oftentimes begin to control us, to take over us. And let's see what that looks like. Verse 2, I want to read again. Haggai 1, 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. I think it is extremely tempting for people to want to get right with God. They want to maybe one day walk with the Lord, just not yet. You'll hear this sometimes. This may be, I know, a stereotype, but certainly I knew numbers of people in the college years who their attitude was, I want to get serious about Jesus. I mean, I I call myself a Christian, and yes, when I get married one day, especially if I have kids, I'll I'll, I'll be committed to church. I'm going to be in the Bible. I'm going to be walking with the Lord. But right now, I just want to have fun. I want to kind of sow my wild oats. I just want to have a good time. I don't want to be so worried about all the Jesus stuff. That seems like killjoy stuff. Anyway, I want to enjoy my time. And so there can be a temptation to say, yes, but not yet. Yes, I want to walk with the Lord, but not yet. And these people were saying, yes, of course we've got to build the temple. They're not denying that. There's no evidence they don't want to ever build the temple. They just said, not today, not this year, not right now, not yet. And they kept saying that for 16 years. Well, St. Augustine, many of you know his story, his book, The Confessions. He talks about his sin and his struggles as he became a Christian, as an adult. St. Augustine was locked into sexual sin. He was living with a woman he was not married to. His Christian mother was praying for him for years And Augustine did not want to think about walking with the Lord. And then over time, he started to be bothered by what he was doing and how he was living. 
And then he finally was really becoming mentally and emotionally tortured by his sin. And there were moments close to his conversion where he said, I want holiness and I want purity. He called it lady chastity. He had, it's kind of like in Proverbs. You had the, the, the wicked woman who, who's a seductress in Proverbs. You have the lady of wisdom and these contrasting women who represent these two ways of living. And he said, I, I do want to give up uh, this, 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 this evil path and I do want to one day have lady chastity. I want to walk in purity. That's my, that's my goal. But he said, but not yet. I don't want to do it now. I want to do it one day. I don't want to do it now. And the battle within him fought on and on until finally he came to that famous scene where he was outside a house in a garden, and he said that he had been weeping tears because he just did not want to let go of his sin. And he said the moment would come when he thought, okay, now's the moment. I'm going to give my sin up. I'm going to turn away from this evil lifestyle. I'm going to live for God in purity. And he said this, he, would, he would almost picture these two women in his mind beckoning him. These two temp- the, the temptation toward evil and then the woman uh, asking him for purity. And he said, I could see this woman over here uh, of immorality. And he said, I could see as she beckoned me. And she would say, never again. Never again are you going to partake of the pleasures that I offer? And he said, the thought of giving it up forever was unimaginable to him. He said, I can't bear the thought of never ever having these pleasures again of sin. But then he would look over here and see purity. And he saw how attractive holiness and purity were becoming to him. And he was stuck in the middle. And as you know, the story goes, he heard a small child of about three years old next door singing uh, tole lege, tole lege, which means take and read. And Augustine said, okay, I'm just going to take my collection of Paul's letters, and I'm just going to flip it open to whatever I can find, and I'm going to read the first verse I find. This is, by the way, not how you're supposed to do Bible study. That's what he did. And so he grabbed his collection of Paul's letters, he opened it up to the end of Romans chapter 13, and it says, no more in sexual morality, no more in drunkenness. No more in orgies, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. What an amazing text to turn to in that moment. He said at that moment, his tears stopped flowing. He stood up and went over to a friend, and he was converted in that very moment, and his entire life radically changed as an adult at that time. Now, that's a very dramatic illustration, and that's a non-Christian becoming a Christian. But are there areas in your life where you would say, I know this is what I'm called to do by God in His Word, but I'm saying, not yet. What would that be? And where are areas where we need to repent and to move forward? Let's look at the comparison here of these passions. Look with me at verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. Let me stop here. They say, time has not yet come. And then God uses the same word, time, and says, you have plenty of time to build your own houses. So is it a time issue? Because you said it's not the time to build God's house. And God said, well, you have plenty of time to work on your own paneled houses. They look very nice. What about my house over here? You've got plenty of time for your own needs. So this is, this is where God is comparing the passions in order to confront sin. I think one of the most powerful ways to confront sin in my own life is to compare my passions, right? Take something that I am devoted to, not of God or Christ, just something that I love in my life, and then compare that to my passion for spiritual things. And you will find very quickly the conviction of God's Spirit when you do that. Think about how your mental energy is so easily taken by this thing over here. You just love to think about it, spend money on it, spend time on it. You could talk for hours about this thing over here. But then compare that to your walk with the Lord. 
your passion for God's word, your passion for uh, these kinds of things, and make a comparison. God says, okay, do you have time? Yeah, you got time to work on your houses. In fact, they're paneled, very nice wood that you're using here on your homes. Number two, do you guys have plenty of time to work on your homes? Are you devoted to your homes? Are you making really nice houses? Yes. Do you guys have your own businesses going here? Yeah, you're, you're working all around the clock. You've got business commitments and your house is looking great. Look down the street here. Only the foundations of my house have been laid. And for 16 years, there's no panels of wood. There's nothing of the rebuilding process. And God compares the passions they have for their own personal gain and well-being, and he compares it with their passion for building God's house. And you see zeal for one and a complete lack of zeal for the other. What might this look like in our lives today? Well, there's many ways you could, I'm sure, apply this. Um, We looked at the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For you know that the Gentiles seek after these things, the unbelievers, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God knows about all of your physical needs, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient to the day is its own trouble. Jesus is doing the same thing that God is doing through Haggai. He's comparing passions. You guys care a lot about what you eat. You care a lot about what you wear. You care a lot about uh, all your physical needs. How do your passions do when you compare physical things, your finances, your clothes, your belongings, your homes? How much time, passion, energy, and money do we spend on those things? And then let's compare the kingdom of God. His righteousness. If someone followed you around this past week, and man, there's areas I would be guilty as charged in this. If someone followed you around, saw everything you did, everything you said, every bit of money you spent, all that you were thinking about and planning for in the last seven days, and I know we've got a plan for physical things. I know that. I'm not denying that. But if someone saw that, would they get the impression of you and of me that the kingdom of God really, truly is top priority in my heart, in my life, in my passions? Or is it just something that we do to check off the box because it's Sunday or whatever it may be? Is it a passion? Is it what we're living for? And is everything else really ordered underneath that and his righteousness? That's the question. So we need to be constantly comparing passions. I will just say, I'm not good at this, by the way, uh, this way of preaching. One of the things I think that made Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, such a good preacher beyond the fact that he was crazy brilliant and could almost speak poetry, poetry like spontaneously without planning. I mean, he, he was unusually gifted in many ways, the prince of preachers. But one thing Spurgeon does, if you read his sermons or if you ever look at him, one thing is he will very frequently compare our passions with God, and compare our passions for worldly things with God. And what you'll see is over, he'll, he'll also compare us with God. He'll say things like this, you poor Christian, how many times this week have you forgotten all about the Lord? How many moments have gone by where you haven't even taken God into your consideration? And he'll stop and say, but God hasn't forgotten you. Jesus never stopped interceding for you this week, Christian. You see how powerful that is? To take an area of failing in our life and then compare it to God's faithfulness to us? Spurgeon does this over and over and over. It just strikes at your affections. You say, Lord, help me. You are so faithful to me. Let me not be faithless in the way that I am towards you. All right, let's move to our second point. 
God's word confronts sin by showing sin's miserable results. Again, this is verses 6 and 9 to 11. I'm going to skip 7 and 8 for right now. So verse 6, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now just stop there. I understand this is happening to them literally, but there's also a metaphorical way that this is true, isn't it? See, I think C.S. Lewis said, if you aim at earth, you're going to get nothing. But if you aim at heaven, you're going to get earthly blessings thrown in as a bonus. That's a great way to say it. Aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get nothing. And that's what this text is saying. See, these people are ignoring God's work, and they're focusing on their material things. And guess what? The more they focus on material things, the less satisfying the material things are. It's like pouring their money into a wallet that's got holes in the bottom. Just the money is falling out. They put the credit card in, it slips out the bottom. They've got, a, they've got this pouch of money, and as they pour the money in, half the money just goes right out the bottom. Yeah, they've got clothes, but not enough to keep them warm. Yeah, they've got food but not enough to satisfy their hunger. Yes, they have drink, but not enough to satisfy their thirst. This is a parable of all that goes on when we worship material things. Let me quote here. This is a non-Christian man, okay? This man is definitely not a Christian. Tragically, he committed suicide not long after saying what he said here. This man's name was David Foster Wallace. He's a non-Christian writer, And in 2005, not long before committing suicide, tragically, uh, he gave a graduation speech uh, to the class at Kenyon University, uh, excuse me, Kenyon College, and this is part of what he said. So listen, non-Christian, not long before ending his own life, tragically, here is what he said, and I actually agree with almost everything he says here. Listen to this. As, as As an author, he writes this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God, lowercase g, or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. This is a man who does not worship God. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious, They are default settings. Now, that man was not a believer. And again, as I said, he tragically took his own life not many years after saying those words. But I think he was close to understanding something very true in that speech. He's right. When we live for the things of this world, they end up controlling us and enslaving us. Think about it. The thing that you are trying to find security, worth, and joy in, if it's not God, is going to master you. It's going to demand that you give everything to it, and you are going to become so anxious about losing it and so depressed if you do lose it that you won't even feel like your life has meaning or purpose anymore. And so God, in His grace, so often disciplines us 
You could call it cursing our blessings, right? He, 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 brings, he brings a sort of dissatisfaction upon worldly blessings so that we learn now in this life that those things are not the answer. And it's an act of severe mercy and love to awaken us to the fact that what I'm living for is not going to do it. It's not going to satisfy. And God is beckoning us to himself to say, I can give you what you are looking for in all the wrong places. Look at verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. I just tell you, that could be a bumper sticker for all of, of, of life without God. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. And the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Now, I don't want it to be misunderstood. This, this part would be very easy to misunderstand. Okay, now everyone, I'm going to give a technical theological point here, so I need you to hear this clearly. A prosperity preacher could easily misuse this text. Let me try to explain what's going on. We are in not the new covenant right now. Haggai was written during the old covenant, the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant with Israel, right, at Mount Sinai. Now listen, we're not under that covenant today. This is very important. In the old covenant, God in Deuteronomy 11 and 28 talks about this. He says, listen, if you will obey me under the Mosaic covenant, I will bless you materially as well as spiritually. You will be blessed at the kneading bowl. You'll be blessed in the kitchen. You'll be blessed in your workplace. You'll be blessed as you go in, blessed as you go out, blessed everywhere you look. And there'll be material as well as spiritual blessings in the Mosaic covenant. And part of what would happen was when Israel disobeyed, they got both spiritual curses and judgment, and they also got physical, literal judgment. And so exile was physical judgment, wasn't it? And it was, they were sent out of the land. Well, here God says, I'm literally going to bring judgment down on your crops, on your food, on all your material goods. And if you turn back to me and begin rebuilding the temple, I will physically bless you with prosperous harvest so that you have enough to eat as well as prosper you spiritually. Now, let me just say here, when you jump into the new covenant, God still promises us physical blessings but those physical blessings are promised in the next life, not in this life. That is an eternity where there will be no more sickness, no more sighing, no more moaning, no more crying, no more pain anymore, because at the resurrection of the dead, we will be eternally healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. You hear that first, ladies and gentlemen? I do believe in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It just doesn't happen in this life. It happens in the next life, okay? The prosperity gospel takes place in eternity, but it's not promised for the here and now. And there are prosperity preachers who wrongly use texts like Haggai chapter 1 to preach prosperity right here, right now. That's misunderstanding where we are in the covenants. And again, in case someone only heard that one line today, let me just say I'm not really a believer in the prosperity gospel, okay? Let's make that clear. Room got really uncomfortable, didn't it, when I said that? I actually hate the prosperity gospel, if that clears things up. Let me just make, be very clear there. Okay, let's move to point number three. <clears throat> point number three. God's word confronts sin, number three, by pointing to something better. By pointing to something better. This is verses seven and eight, so kind of the middle of our passage, and we'll end here. So God doesn't just confront their sin, he points them to something better. Verses 7 and 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house 
that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. There is no question in my mind that from beginning to end, God does everything that God does for one ultimate purpose, and it is His own pleasure and His own glory. God does everything for the glory of God, and God's glory is the best thing that we could possibly have. So that our joy in God and God's glory go together in this amazing way. When God is delighting in us as we are obeying Him, and as we are glorifying God and finding full satisfaction in Him and all of our security in Him and our righteousness in Christ, when we are delighting in God and rejoicing in His glory, God is getting the praise and all the credit, and we are getting all the grace and salvation and righteousness and justification so that God gets the glory and we get the joy. And this is this amazing combination of things. Here's what God is saying. If you will do what I'm asking you, which is to begin to rebuild my house and to devote your first priority to God's kingdom, seek His kingdom first, His righteousness, God will find great pleasure in that, and God's glory will be on display, and that's what you're made to do. That's what I'm made to do, so that's where we find our greatest freedom and joy and satisfaction, and it's also where God gets all the attention and the credit and the glory. Now, let's just apply this to how we live today. We live in the new covenant. We're no longer called to build the temple in Jerusalem. That's not our job description in the new covenant. That's something from the old covenant, and so what are we called to do today? Well, Jesus said this, Matthew 12, 6, he said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And he was talking about himself. Jesus is the true temple of God. And when it says God takes pleasure in it, commentators say that word pleasure is the same word God uses to describe the pleasure God took in animal sacrifice in the temple. And so when animal sacrifice was being offered out of faith to God, faith in God, God would take great pleasure. Remember Noah after the flood, he built an altar, he, he killed the lamb, he killed the animals, the burnt offering, and it said God smelled the pleasing aroma, he was pleased by it, and he spoke of the covenant with Noah at that time. Well, God ultimately finds the final pleasure in Christ's sacrifice for us as the true temple. And now Ephesians 2, I want you to turn, this is our last text, turn to Ephesians 2 in your New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2. Here is how we think about the temple building project today. It's not a building, it's God's church, and not the church building, it's the church, the people of the church. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Think temple of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's ultimately God's word. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here's the last point of application. How do we build the temple today? There's two things, two, two things. Number one, we invite people to Christ. 
We urge people to trust Christ because when they do, they go from death to life and they become living stones in God's holy temple. They become part of God's temple as His Spirit dwells in them. And number two, that's number one. Number two, the other thing we do is we work by God's grace to see all of us in this room grow in our love for the Lord, our knowledge of the Lord, and our own personal holiness. As we grow in godliness, God's temple is being built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets which ultimately is His Word. So as we speak the truth in love, God builds up His church on the foundation of His Word and of Christ Jesus Himself, the cornerstone. And that is how we build God's temple today. Ultimately, the work is all done by God's Spirit. We, we plant, we water, but God is the one who gives the growth. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, uh, it is no doubt a temptation for every single person in this room. In fact, it's probably our natural default to prioritize things wrongly in our lives. It is so easy to slip into this. It can be a subtle habit, way of thinking, prioritization, valuing things that is just not in line with what you said through Haggai or what you said through your son, the Lord Jesus. So God, I pray that you would help us to truly with our affections, with our heart, seek first, value most the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and that we would trust You. We wouldn't ignore physical things. That's not what we're asked to do. That we would ultimately know that You know that we need all those things, what we eat, what we drink, what we wear, and You care about those things, and You will provide us with what we need. And I pray, God, we would be focused on the needs in front of us, and that we would be used by You to invite people to Jesus, the true temple and that we could be built up in our knowledge of you and in our love for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.